0: When I was growing up, as all young people, or most young people, you have certain chores to take care of, certain jobs that are given to you, such as keeping your room clean. Uh, some do better at that than others. Every once in a while, my father would tell me that I need to clean up my room, and so I would clean it up, and then I would ask him to come in and check it out, because I knew that until uh, he okayed it, I couldn't go out and play baseball, or whatever else I wanted to do. So he would check it, and sometimes he'd say, well, I need to work a little harder. Other times he'd let me go. The same was for cleaning up the, uh, the garage or whatever might uh, be available that needed to be done, mowing the lawn and that sort of thing. And I was very used to doing the job and asking my father, is it okay? And one day he shocked me. And it's a lesson I've never forgotten. I asked him to uh, check it to see if it was okay, and he asked me a question. It was, I think, in my room. He said, is it clean? And I wasn't really ready for that. Because, you see, I was used to doing about as much as I thought that needed to be done so that I could get away with, uh, go on and, and play baseball. But when he asked the question, is it clean, That was a bit of a a shocker because now it put that on my shoulders. Instead of putting on his shoulders to decide, it was put on my shoulders. And I immediately felt a little bit of guilt because I knew that it could be a little bit better. Although I thought it was probably enough to pass inspection, nevertheless, I realized that it could be better. Today we're going to explore the difference between the questions is it okay, and how can I truly please God? Because, you see, the question, is it okay, comes up many, many times. Those of us who are in the ministry have heard it hundreds of times. And let me say at the beginning here that I'm not really uh, criticizing the fact that we have new people coming into the church. They often do have that question, is it okay? Is it okay to do this on the Sabbath, or is it okay to do that? And that's a common question, and it's understandable. And for any who are newer, we understand that, that that's a normal and a natural question. But the point I'm trying to make today is that as we grow and as we mature spiritually, just as I was growing physically and maturing, there comes a time when it's not the right question. And the question is, is it clean? Is it what God, or in this case, my father, was looking for? Is it the best job that it can be? It's human nature to, despi- to uh, despise God's rule in our lives. And this often is where it comes from because we like to get as close to the edge of the cliff as possible. We, non- we understand from scriptures that fornication is a sin. But how many young people, and not so young people, try to get as close to the edge of the cliff as they can without stepping over the line? Of course, it depends on where one draws the line, too, because people draw the line very differently. But the point is that we try to get as close to the edge of the cliff as possible, hoping that we won't step over, or in some cases, perhaps privately hoping that we will step over the line and repent later. Here's where that approach ends up, the approach of, is it okay? Let's turn to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Matthew 23. And as soon as I say Matthew 23, I think that everybody knows, or most of you know, what the subject of the chapter is. But let's notice verse 16. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. It comes down to, is this okay or is that okay? Is this right? Is this wrong? Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. In other words, we have among the Jews of that day certain do's and certain don'ts. Certain things were considered okay, while other things were not. He says, therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. Verse 21, he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Verse 23, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faith. You see, if you have enough do's and enough don'ts and you have that long list, as long as you stay within that list, you feel safe. And yet oftentimes there are bigger questions that are being looked over or passed over and missed. And he says they've neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faith. Now, justice and mercy and faith are a little bit more difficult to always define. Not that they're undefinable, but uh, they're, they're a little bit more fluid, you might say. Whereas tithing on this object or that object or something else is rather clear cut. And so if someone says you have to tithe on mint and anise and cumin, you can feel very good if you do that. But if they haven't given you a do or a don't on justice, mercy, and faith, well then, it's not so easy. He says, These you ought to have done, justice, mercy, and faith, without leaving the others undone. So he said that The others were important, the tithing and so forth were important. But there are also things that are even more important. And he made it very clear. And we say more important than tithing on little leaves and seeds and all that sort of thing. He said, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, But inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. And he goes on with a number of examples. The whitewashed tombs, they would clean the outside or paint them, whitewash the outside so they look good, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. This is what the is it okay The question leads to, ultimately, where you have a long list of this is okay, but this is not. Now, to show that this attitude in Judaism, and I'm not trying to pick on Jews, but they give us a good example, uh, the sermon here is not about them, it's about us. But this comes from the Jerusalem Post. This goes back a few years, 2007, so it's 10 years of age. But it says, a recent decision by the Israeli Defense Force, Top Brass, to institute a kosher telephone that minimizes Shabbat desecration or Sabbath desecration is yet another sign of the growing influence of religious soldiers on the army. In recent weeks, the IDF purchased hundreds of telephones developed by the SOMET Institute, I probably slaughtered that, sorry about that, T-Z-O-M-E-T Institute, a research group that finds technology-based loopholes in Jewish law according to the Army Weekly. So loopholes in the Jewish law. Because, you see, if you have a list of do's and don'ts and you can find something that is not a, a don't, then it may be Okay. Because you will, because you will never come to an end of dos and don'ts once you start that practice. Dialing the other electronic operations on the Shabbat phone are performed in an indirect way, so that the person using the phone is not dialing. I'm sorry, not directly closing electrical circuits. Instead, an electrical eye scans the phone buttons every two seconds. If a button has been pressed, the eye activates the phone dialing system. This indirect way of activa- uh, activation is called a uh, grammar. So, in other words, you, you, you have to punch in the same numbers, but it doesn't do it directly. It's scanning it and doing it indirectly. So you have this situation. I've used this example before where A.B. calls up uh, Mordecai and says, you want to lob a few uh, 150... Uh, 55, uh, whatever, millimeter, well, not millimeter, but uh, whatever it is, uh, cannon shots over there, artillery pieces on these people that are coming across the border. Now, that produces a pretty good-sized fire. But a little tiny circuit on a telephone would be Sabbath desecration. What Christ said about the Jews of that day is still the same. And yet we have people who try to become Messianic Jews and get into all the, the folder all that Christ condemned. Another gadget that is now widely used in the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, is a self-erasing pen. Writing is one of hundreds of activities prohibited on Shabbat. However, writing in ink that does not remain legible is a less severe transgression that is permitted when necessary, even if there is no danger to life. So all of you people who are taking notes now with pens that do not erase after a certain period of time, you would be desecrating the the Sabbath, because this is a don't among certain Orthodox Jews. It's interesting that it can go to that extreme, and yet this is where... The is it okay uh, approach toward life, toward obedience to God, leads. We must learn to ask the correct question or questions. And First John three, First John three, and verse twenty two. There's something stated there as to why God does things for us. He says. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We not only keep his commandments, but we do those things that are pleasing in God's sight. Sometimes we wonder, well, exactly what is it that is pleasing in God's sight? And we might think of David, who was a man after God's own heart, so I've got to write a lot of psalms or hymns. Thankfully, uh, that's not a requirement for us because some of us would not have the ability to write uh, very good psalms or hymns. Uh, Some might do so. But when it says, do those things that are pleasing in his sight, God does spell out certain things for us. He gives us the Ten Commandments. He also gives us certain statutes and judgments based on those Ten Commandments so that we have an idea of how we are to conduct our lives. For example, he tells us that uh, we are to put a, a fence or a wall around our roof, the roof of our house. Now, you don't do that, I don't think, and I don't do that, but because we understand the principle there. These were roofs that were usually flat, and people went up there in the cool of the evening to get a little fresh air, where the breeze would blow, and they could enjoy the outdoors before retiring for the night. and having their friends over there, even Peter went up to the roof or uh, the roof of the house around noontime to pray. Uh, read that in Acts the 10th chapter. So people were up on the roofs of their homes and it does make sense that you want to have a barrier so that somebody isn't talking not paying attention, and backing up, and falls over the edge. In other words, this is showing love toward your neighbor. It's a safety rule. If you dig a pit, you are to put a barrier around it. So it's a way of showing us love toward our neighbor. that We don't dig a pit and let somebody fall into it at night who's unaware that you dug it during that day. There are rules that God shows us as examples But God doesn't spell out every form of conduct that we can have in this life. And when you think about it, we can see the wisdom of God because he wants to know what are you going to do in a particular situation? Are you going to learn from the principles I've given you and then apply those principles to various decisions that come up on a daily basis? Or are you going to look for... How little can I get away with? How little can I clean my room so I can go out and play baseball? What is it that God wants of us? So God allows us to make these decisions. And obviously, when we make the right decisions on a variety of subjects, then we are pleasing God because we are learning from His Word. We are taking the principles. We are applying them in our lives. And this is one way we do those things that are pleasing in his sight, not just keeping his commandments, but making wise judgments according to his commandments. Let's take a a clear-cut example, one that is still very relevant in our world today. Uh, The question has come up a few times by mostly teenagers. I think they know the answer to this now. But some years ago the question would come up is it okay to get a tattoo? Now, in this particular case, God makes it very clear. Uh, this is a, a clear cut example here in Leviticus nineteen twenty eight. Leviticus nineteen and verse twenty eight, he gives us the answer. So God does give us a few do's and don'ts here, but we should learn from this to apply to other things that are going on in the world around us. But in Leviticus 19.28, it says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Eternal. He does not want us defacing our bodies. And, of course, some of the things that people tattoo on them are not really all that flattering. Uh, Although there are those that put butterflies and different things like that that uh, might be, uh, you know, attractive creatures of God, but God doesn't want us to do those things. Now, who is it that does that sort of thing? Well, it's the world around us. And oftentimes it's uh, cultures or societies that uh, are not necessarily in the, the, the upper classes. Uh, in our society, when I grew up, The ones who got tattoos were sailors who had too much to drink when they were in port. Uh, That's who had tattoos. Most sober-minded people didn't do it. Today, celebrities, athletes especially, and everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing it, then why wouldn't we want to do it? Well, God tells us not to do it. But there are many different Uh, examples that uh, of culture and society that are always at war with the values of God. Let's take an example that is not so clear-cut, frankly an example that for the most part is kind of past. It's a fad that is, I think it's mostly passing. It's not entirely past us, but uh, it's still there. And that is, is it okay for a man to wear a necklace or get an earring? Uh, Earrings were the big thing of a few years ago. So let's look at the Scriptures, and let's see what the Scriptures tell us. In Exodus, the 32nd chapter, Exodus 32, and verses 2 and 3, it says, uh, well, let me start with verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. So this was when Moses was up in the mountain. Then Aaron said to them, verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So here the sons as well as the daughters were wearing earrings. They'd come out of Egypt at this time. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. Now, let's take a look at another scripture, the 35th chapter and verse 22. They obviously hadn't taken off all the earrings uh, for the golden calf to build it. But in Exodus 35 and verse 22, says, Every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, these were offerings for the tabernacle. Uh, fine linen and goat's hair, red, uh, <clears throat> red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Everyone offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom it was found, a case you would, for any work of this, uh, the uh, service, brought it. Uh, back in verse 22, I guess I started verse 23. I should have gone verse 22. It says, They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings, And nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the eternal. So it does seem to indicate that uh, men uh, still had earrings at this point. Remember, they'd come out of Egypt. But let's look at a couple other scriptures. Let's go over to the book of Judges. Judges, the eighth chapter. And we'll start with uh, verse 24. Then Gideon said, said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. They had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So in other words, the people that they had defeated were Ishmaelites. And it says they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. In other words, the Ishmaelites must have been known to wear earrings. And the contrast there is that by this time, it would appear that Israel didn't and other surrounding nations may not have had earrings. Uh, and again, this was the plunder from the people they were fighting against, so obviously men. The, the Ishmaelites were known to wear earrings. And so that was a a cultural thing amongst the Ishmaelites. And that little detail is, is kind of interesting, isn't it? Now let's go back to Genesis 35 and verse 4. Genesis 35 and verse 4. It says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now, who's he talking about? Let's go back to verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, so his household and everybody who was with him, part of the whole uh, caravan that was going there, he says, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. So there were a number of foreign gods, including uh, the, the ones that his, his uh, wife uh, Rachel had, as we read uh, someplace along the line here. And he says, uh, let's, uh, "Let's arise, go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone." And so then he tells them to take the foreign gods and the earrings which were in their ears, and he buried them under the terebinth tree which was in Shechem. Uh, Interesting, isn't it, that the earrings were thrown in here along with foreign gods. Now, it might be that the kind of earrings that they had were amulets of some sort. In fact, we use that term, amulet, don't we? Uh, in in bracelets and necklaces and so forth, uh, which really goes back to uh, various figures of of gods and so forth. Um, And they were to bury, or he buried them. There was something wrong with the earrings that they were wearing at that time. So there's some ambiguity in Scripture on the subject, but it would be difficult to condemn the wearing of earrings on either men or women from the Scriptures because we see that the israelites wore them and so forth uh we we find it difficult by the scriptures just directly to uh, to condemn them so some of you may be thinking is he saying it's okay to wear earrings for men or you might be thinking is he saying it's not okay for men to wear earrings the wrong question It's the wrong question. Because this question just engenders more questions. I'd like to read something here and maybe give a little bit of background on this. Back in worldwide days, I actually said over here in Greenville, South Carolina, where I was pastoring and up in Asheville, that I believed the day would come when men wearing earrings would not be an issue in the church. Because from the scriptures, it's a little bit difficult to condemn earrings on men outright. And one of the odd things, and I may have told you this before sometime in the past, but one of the odd things, and we have new people who have not heard this, that when I decided where to go, when the worldwide church went into apostasy and I talked with a particular individual about what Dr. Meredith thought about something. One of the questions I asked was, what did he think about men wearing earrings? Now, that seems like a rather mundane, odd question to ask somebody when the church has gone into total apostasy and you're trying to figure out where to go. But what I was trying to figure out is whether Dr. Meredith would make a judgment on that based on his personal feelings or based on the Scriptures and what the Scriptures would say. And we discussed that on several occasions in the Council of Elders. And oddly, uh, there there was some disagreement there, and I was on a very different side in that particular situation. And part of the reason I was was because I began to understand that the issue was not earrings. That is what seems to be the issue, but that's not the issue at all. One of the books that uh, certainly influenced me, and it certainly influenced Dr. Meredith as well, in fact, this, was, this is his copy of it, The Marketing of Evil by uh, David Kapelian. And when I read that, Uh, Quite a few years ago, I think when it first came out, it helped me to begin to see a little different side of things and to get a bigger picture. On page 61, he talks about, he starts talking about his son Joshua, who's 12 years of age and how he was a proud Boy Scout and he was uh, giving the Scout uh, oath and law and so forth. And then he talks about his family traveled to Cape May, New Jersey on vacation about that time. And they went to the beaches there, and Joshua hit it off great with his cousin. His cousin was a little bit older. And his cousin was wearing a choker or a a necklace, kind of a wooden, uh, odd-looking necklace there. And... He says, of course, Joshua had always regarded necklaces, bracelets, earrings, and the like as strictly girl stuff and wouldn't dream of donning such gear himself and looking like a girl or a weirdo. But by the end of the week, Joshua, he says, you guessed it, wanted a necklace. And so, uh, Mr. Capellium took his son out. They went for a, a walk. And they discussed that. And he said here that uh, something he had formerly despised, wearing a necklace, but he was also noticeably hostile toward me for some strange reason, even though he admitted I had done nothing to offend him. As we talked, it dawned on me what was going on. Obviously, he wanted to be like his older cousin, whom he looked up to and had bonded with hence the desire to wear a dumb-looking neck, uh, a neck choker. But for me, he now saw me in uncomfortable contrast to coolness, seeing as I represented his state of mind before he was captivated by this alien desire. <clears throat> I was a threat to his new allegiance, so he was rejecting me along with his own previous viewpoint. <clears throat> as it turned out, I didn't need to say too much. Joshua, why are you mad at me? Is it because I don't think that deep down you you really want to wear a necklace? Tell me something. What would you have thought if two weeks ago before we came to Cape May, I had asked you if you'd like to wear a clunky wooden necklace, would you have wanted to? And his reply was, no way, without hesitation. The trance was broken. Realization set in. He cried briefly, gave me a hug, and assured me uh, manfully he did not want to look like a girl and wear a necklace. Now, this may seem like a small thing, but what is at work? Because this is just a symptom of many things that go on in our society. Back then, it was a necklace. Then it was earrings. Then it became tattoos. Tattoos. As soon as men stopped having long hair, they had to color their hair. They had to have the Dennis Rodman look. There's always going to be something out there that you and I are going to have to make decisions uh, regarding. Well, it's interesting because he brings out uh, a video that was uh, shown. Actually, we showed this at summer camp, one of the big mistakes we had. Uh, I'd read the transcript of this, uh, this particular video, and it's about an hour long, and it makes perfect sense, and it was great. So I ordered the video, and it so happened I was taking the counselors or assistant counselors out to lunch that day, and uh, this was a forum, so they they played this video, and I hadn't reviewed it. Almost always I review anything that goes on at camp, but I hadn't. And the the, the actual uh, wording of everything was fine. What wasn't fine was the it was the video part of it, because here in this very pristine environment at camp, uh, there were a lot of shocked people. I think probably the, the adults more than the kids, but uh, I won't, uh, won't go into the details. I could, but I, I'll just leave it at that. So I had to get up and apologize to everybody that uh, I'd made a mistake, and I think everybody understood, and it, it worked out just fine. But this video is called Merchants of Cool, and some of you probably have seen it. It begins, they want to be cool, they are impressionable, and they have the cash. They are corporate America's $150 billion dream. Now, that was back then. What is it today? Probably a lot more money today. That's the opening statement in PBS's stunning 2001 frontline documentary, The Merchants of Cool. What emerges in the following 60 minutes is a scandalous portrait of how major corporations, Viacom, Disney, AOL, uh, uh, Time Warner, and others, study America's children like laboratory rats in order to sell them billions of dollars in merchandise by tempting, degrading, and corrupting them. think that's a bit of an overstatement. It's an understatement. When you've got a few gigantic transnational corporations, each looking down loaded down with debt, competing madly for as much shelf space and brain space as they can, uh, says New York uh, University communications professor uh, Mark Crispin Miller, they're going to do whatever they think works the fastest and with the most people, which means they will drag the standards down. Let's see how far down. It's a blizzard of brands, all competing for the same kids, explains Rushkoff. To win teens' loyalties, marketers believe they have to speak their language the best, so they study them carefully as an anthropologist would exotic native cultures. Today, five enormous companies are responsible for selling nearly all of youth culture. They are the true merchants of cool. Rupert Murdoch's News Corp., Disney, Viacom, Universal Vivendi, and AOL Time Warner. The documentary demonstrates how big corporations literally send spies to infiltrate young people's social settings to gather intelligence on what they can induce these children to buy next. The entertainment companies, which are a handful of massive conglomerates, that own four of the five music companies that sell 90% of the music in the United States. Those same companies also own all the film studios, all the major TV networks, all the TV stations pretty much in the ten largest markets. University of Illinois communications professor Robert Chesney reveals in the documentary, quote, they own all or part of every single commercial cable channel. They look at the teen market as part of this massive empire that they're colonizing. What about the cable channel that positions itself as champion of today's teens and preteens, champion of their music, their rebellion, their free spirit, and their genuine, if ever changing, notions of what is cool? Whatever else MTV might be, at least it's in- interested in kids, Right? Sure, just like the lion is interested in the gazelle, everything on MTV is a commercial. That's all that MTV is. I don't even know if MTV is still out there. I, I I've seen very little, but I remember watching MTV one morning during the feast. I, I was just looking for the news, and I happened to come across it. And and here were this. Uh, in fact, it helped me with the sermon because it it, it, it was. I don't even remember what the song was, whatever it was, but it had all these people dancing around. There was some kind of on a balcony around there. And, and all of a sudden, they, they started going like this and ripping, you know, the, the, the flesh off the arm and throwing it around. And by the time they all ended up, they were all skeletons. And I it was coming up in the last great day. And I thought, well, this is just the opposite of the last great day. <laughs> Instead of throwing all the muscle and skin off, it was just the opposite. But It was weird, just weird. That's almost my total exposure to MTV. So I don't even know if MTV is still out there. But if it isn't, there's something that's replaced it. And as it says, there's nothing, there's no non-commercial part of MTV. It's all an infomercial. Now, so we're not picking on the kids. Uh, HGTV. Anybody watch HGTV? Probably 90% of the women here. I'm always telling my wife, it's an infomercial. That's all that it is. It's entertaining, but it's an infomercial. When I grew up, I loved Popeye, Popeye the Sailor Man. And whenever he'd be in a bad spot, he'd turn his his uh, uh, pipe over and open up a can of spinach, eat the spinach, and then he'd beat up on Brutus or whatever the fellow's name was, Bruno Brutus, the bad guy. And it always was the spinach that gave them the strength. I didn't know it growing up. That was an infomercial for spinach. Now, I like spinach. Canned spinach is another matter. Uh, But that's what it was. And all of this is used. The same thing with all the kids' cartoons. People ask, is it okay? (laughs) There's that question for kids to watch cartoons on Saturday morning television. And my response usually is that don't they get enough television to start with? And do you really want to fill their minds with an infomercial? Because that is what they're going to, to uh, receive there. Of course, now they probably don't watch television. It's going to be, well, maybe Netflix or Netflix or something else. But th- that question always comes up. Is it okay? Is it okay? And if the minister says it's okay, it must be okay. But sometimes it may not be okay. Is God pleased with us being manipulated by the world? And that's the point that I'm trying to make here. It's a manipulation. And what I came to see was that it was not earrings, per se, on guys. That was not the issue. The issue was that there are five major multinational corporations and plenty of others out there, smaller players, that are all competing for youth culture and they're going to do whatever causes shock because there is a certain nature in young people. And I think that there's part of this is natural because God doesn't want us to stay with our parents forever. He wants us to be able to step out and be independent beings, of course. But there Satan has used that to turn kids against their parents as Mr. Capellian was describing about the choker that his son wanted. And it's a way of dividing families. And after you get through the one issue, the, the choker, then it's going to be the earrings. And if it's not that, it's going to be purple and orange hair, uh, or it's going to be tattoos, or it's going to be cuttings in the flesh. It's going to be something out there that is there to shock parents to separate families. And I realized that, uh, well, some things might, quote, be okay, according to the scriptures. Is it really what we want to do? At the summer camp, we always had to be aware of this. And every once in a while, somebody would come to to camp, not very often, with, uh, you know, different facial piercing, or whatever it might be. And sometimes we had people come to church that way. And when I see it, I would usually talk to the person and say, I can't prove to you from the Bible that this is what we shouldn't do. Well, I say I couldn't prove. I I could from principles. I can't find a scripture that says this is okay or this isn't okay. I can find some scriptures that I think give certain principles that we should be able to make a wise decision on this. But I would say, as an adult, I would really appreciate if you wouldn't do this, because it sends a message to our young people, and they're going to take it one step further. And we really don't want to get this started in the church. There's some things we just don't want to get started. Uh, every once in a while, we have people that do things that we don't, particularly approve of, but nevertheless, uh, you know, young people and so forth. And we're not here to, uh, to measure everybody's behavior and have a yardstick religion. We don't want to do that. But when it comes to people who might be influential to others, we sometimes talk to them and say, you could really help us if you would do things differently. Let's look at some scriptures here, Deuteronomy 12 and verse 2. Deuteronomy 12. And verse 2. I'll start with verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the eternal God of your fathers has giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. He said of those people, the people of that land, who had corrupted themselves unbelievably. He says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, on the high mountains, and on the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the eternal, your God, with such things. You shall seek the place where the eternal, your God, chooses. Now, what he's describing here are specifically the gods, but what are the gods of this world? The the merchants of cool, the desire to have the mind on the self. At our summer camp, we used to talk about that. We wanted everybody to dress a certain way. Instead of putting their hats on sideways, we wanted them forward so we knew where they were going, coming, or going sideways. We wanted to know which direction they were going. But for young people, they want to wear a hat just about any way except the way that it was intended to be worn. A baseball cap was to keep the sun out of your eyes. But it's cool, isn't it, when you put it on backward or you put it on sideways. Unless it's blue or red and you're in the wrong part of town, that can get you killed. But it's What's cool? Now, when you're trying to be cooler than the other fella, who are you thinking about? You think about the self, and so we wanted our young people to think about others, to be concerned about the welfare of others, instead of everybody trying to out cool one another, because then everybody loses he spoke of the gods there but is there not a principle of what are the gods of this age the gods of rebellion the gods of self aggrandizement of trying to outdo the next fellow competing with cool notice the 14th chapter of deuteronomy deuteronomy 14 Verse 1 again, you are the children of the eternal, your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. These are habits that the nations had. For you are a holy people to the eternal, your God. You are to be separate. You are to be clean. You are to be pure. You are to be separate from the people of the land. You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Eternal has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. And then he goes into the laws of clean and unclean meats and what they were not to eat. They were not to be like the nations around them. Over in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, the eighth chapter. That should be enough to tell you what that's about, but just... Saying where it is, First Samuel 8. And I won't read all this, but uh, let's notice verse 5. Verse, I'll start verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. <clears throat> they said to him, Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us. Notice, like all the nations, we want to be like all those people around us. It was predicted that they would have a king, but it is interesting there that their motivation for it was not to please God in any way. It was to be like all the nations around them. So they rejected their true king, which was was God, and they wanted a human king just like all the nations. Notice verse 20. I'll start again. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like those around us. And that's a, that's a natural desire that human nature has. We want to be like everybody around us. I've given the example before of the young man one time in the uh, Conversation we had at, at summer camp and we were talking about conforming and not conforming and, and he, he just said it so honestly and not trying to be smart or anything, but he said, I, I just want to be an individual like all my friends. Now, you, you know, you think about that, an individual just like all my friends. And that is the desire. And it isn't just young people, as adults, we do the same things, don't we? We might hide it a little bit better, but we still do the same things. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12 again. Deuteronomy 12. And this is familiar to us. In verse 29, when the eternal year God cuts off from before you the nations, which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. Now, I understand that we're not talking about them having little idols in the, the truest sense of a, a little carved image or whatever, and, and gods. But what are the gods of this age? What is the culture of this age? Is it the culture of God or is it the culture of another being? And that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the eternal, your God, in that way. For every abomination of the eternal which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Now, when we go back and we look at what happened in the worldwide church of God, how many people did we lose? How many people really wanted to keep Christmas? How many really wanted to eat that lobster or that crab? Apparently quite a few because they didn't wait very long at all. Once they were told that it's okay, there it is, it's okay. They went out immediately that night, some people, to have lobster or to eat pork. Were they really thinking of pleasing God or were they simply following Rules, abdues, and don'ts that are laid down by human beings. We're all familiar with Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, and uh, verses 1 to 6, learn not the way of the heathen, about going out, cutting a tree, Christmas time. Uh, the, the trees at those times, I don't know if it was exactly Christmas as we understand it, but they did worship trees, there's no doubt about it. They would deck them with uh, gold and silver. It may not have been an evergreen tree like uh, many people have today, but there were trees that were worshipped. Over and over again, God told Israel he was to be their God. I gave a sermon back in 2006 on the subject, I am the eternal, your God. Uh, Let's just notice, uh, just briefly, very, very briefly on that, because I'm not going to give the sermon again, but let's go to Leviticus, the 19th chapter people often wonder, why did God want Israel to kill everything and everyone when they came into the land? And when you look at, let's go to the 18th chapter, let's start right there. In the 18th chapter, he talks about all these sexual sins that were being committed by the people of that land. And it had to do with incest had to do with homosexuality. had to do with adultery. Uh, Verse 19, it says, Leviticus 18, verse 19, And you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Eternal." I am the standard that you are to follow. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Some people try to say that the Bible doesn't say anything against homosexuality. Well, there it is right there, and there are several other places. Uh, You shall not mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It's a perversion. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. And he says, verse 28, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And it ends the chapter, verse 30, he says, I am the eternal, your God. Now it is interesting that Leviticus used that expression over and over again. He says, look, I am the standard that you are to follow. Not the nations, not the people around you, but I am the standard. And then you go over to Ezekiel and he actually uses that more often than Leviticus. But he uses it in a different way here in the 37th chapter when Israel will come up out of their graves, the Israelites and the whole world eventually, those who are not in the first resurrection, those who are not going to be in the third resurrection, those who are going to come up and be given a chance and here As we read in verses 12 and 13, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the eternal. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And so Ezekiel concentrates on the fact that you didn't learn the lesson before, but When I do all these things, bring all these punishments upon you, and in this particular case, it's a blessing, giving you a chance, then you're going to know that I am the eternal. Then you're going to know who I am. But man hasn't known God up to this point. Over and over again, God told Israel he was to be their God. If you'd like to view that sermon, you can go back. It's still online. I am the eternal, your God. You can search for it on the uh, living church uh, uh, Living Church of God website. The bottom line though, is that we are to follow God, not this world, and yet there's something within us that we like to follow the world. I remember a young lady this goes back forty five plus years, and she came up to me. it was down in Lake Charles, Louisiana area, and she asked me. Uh, is it okay if I play in the band on Friday night? So being relatively new in the ministry at the time, I was asking her a few questions, and I I asked, well, what what are they playing? What kind of music? What is it? And and this sort of thing. And eventually I, I said to her, I said, what do you think? And she said, I don't think I should. And I thought, you sucker, <laughs> me, I mean myself. She wanted me to give her papal dispensation. She really wanted to play, but she knew that she shouldn't. She knew the answer. But when we start asking questions, is it okay, oftentimes that question is asked with a thought in the back of the mind that I really don't think so, but I want to know if I can do it. How far can I push the limit? Again, I'm not talking about brand new people, because when you have brand new people, there, there's so many questions. They, they, they need to have some sort of framework in which to develop their understanding of the Scriptures. But for those of us who have been around a while, we, we shouldn't always be asking the question, is it okay or is it not? We should be using greater principles than that. So let's take another example of, is it okay? And now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. Because so far, I think probably all of you are with me on this. Or most of you, anyway. And and those that aren't, I, I realize that there are people, no matter what you say, they're just going to do their own thing. I understand that. We have people in the church like that. I don't necessarily mean right here, but maybe here. But in the church as a whole, because I... I know some of the people. Uh, they're like this. They're just going to do what they want to do no matter how you put it, how you frame it. Unless you can give them, you know, here's a scripture that says don't do it, they're, they're going to do it. They're going to rationalize around whatever it is. But the question is, um, is it okay to celebrate one's birthday? Now, it is clear from the Bible that people knew how old they were. The priests were to uh, be able to work from, one place says 25, and then the other, thing, the other says 30 years of age, up to 50 years of age. So you couldn't follow that that regulation if you didn't know what your age was. And it tells us that this person was X number of years old when he died, and we even have all the way back to the... Time before the flood, they were 900 and some odd years of age and all that sort of thing. So it's very clear from the Bible that people knew how old they were. But it's also interesting that the sacred calendar doesn't lend itself to observing birthdays because about every three years, a little bit less, about eight years out of 19, you have an intercalary month. That's an extra month, a 13th month. So if you happen to be born in the 13th month, that could create a little bit of a problem. You, you would only have you'd only be 30 when the person born the month before would be 50 or whatever it was it's also true that historically uh, that the jews did not celebrate birthdays in the bible itself the only birthday celebrations that we find are that of heathen rulers pharaoh and herod It's also true that in both cases, something bad happened. In one case, a man was hanged, and the other, John the Baptist, lost his head. His head was chopped off as a result of a birthday celebration or in conjunction with it. It's also true that the Encyclopedia Britannica 11th edition says, as late as 245, Origen, in his eighth homily on Leviticus, repudiates as sinful the very idea of keeping the birthday of Christ as if he were a king Pharaoh, now Origen was not a very righteous individual in, in, in our terms. Uh, he was uh, uh, one of the the early writers and philosophers and a uh, very arrogant individual thought that the Greater gifts of the Spirit were left to people like himself as opposed to the apostles. That, In other words, they knew more than the apostles. So Origen was not one who was on our side as such. But even Origen says that as late as 245, that the church, and, and again, this wasn't even the true church. This was the church in general. The true church and the false church didn't celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, if anybody's birthday should be celebrated, you would think it would be Christ. So the question is, is there a difference between taking note of and celebrating one's birth? Taking note of it as opposed to throwing a party. Now what am I saying? Is it okay to celebrate birthdays? Or is it wrong to celebrate birthdays? Wrong questions. Wrong questions. We should be asking, how can I please God? What is the mind of God on this question? When I search the scriptures, what is the mind of God on this? What is the purpose of birthday celebrations? What are the fruits of birthday celebrations? Who is it that is introducing and that tends to have birthday celebrations as a big deal? How does the celebration of one's birth conflict or take away from the days that God has set aside for us to keep. Now, if you want to uh, have a list of do's and don'ts, become an Orthodox Jew. Or, frankly, you could go to some other Church of God groups that try to tell you everything to do. You see, it's not our responsibility to answer every question for you. We try to give principles... But some things you have to figure out on your own because because you're showing God where your heart really is. And, of course, we have to be very careful about judging others because we're not all at the same level of spiritual maturity. One area that never ceases to cause controversy in the church regards dress styles, almost always women's dress styles. So let me throw one out here as only one example of many. Are spaghetti straps okay? Now, I hope nobody's wearing a spaghetti strap today because I, not, not because I'm condemning you, but I, I, I simply don't want to embarrass anybody, put a sweater over it, whatever. I'm not even sure I know. I'm not sure I know what a spaghetti strap is. I think I do. I think it's those little thin straps. Is that, I see some ladies nodding their heads. That's what it is. This always came up at camp. I, everything I know I learned at camp. So <laughs> uh, it always came up. And to be honest with you, I never could quite understand what the big deal was about spaghetti straps. But some people, uh, they, they really think spaghetti straps are just a bad thing. Okay, well that's, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> if in doubt, don't, that's the first thing. But are spaghetti straps okay? Well, let me say, I I think, I I can say now I know what they are, the little thin straps, but my quick answer is that it depends. If a seven-year-old is wearing spaghetti straps, I probably wouldn't think that there's any problem with it. I also know that women have different levels of development. They're endowed differently. And... Again, I'm not really sure what the, the issue is with spaghetti straps, but I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for them. I'm just not sure that I understand the issue there. Uh, there are other things that I do understand pretty clearly that are issues when it comes to women's dress, but that doesn't happen to be one of them. Uh, what we do know is what First Timothy 2 says. First Timothy 2. And, of course, this is a bit problematic. Uh, Somebody will take that out of context. The scriptures are problematic. Uh, we'll start verse 8, Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, and like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, the problem with this is that when we speak of modest apparel that can be in the eye of the beholder. And there are some women who dress very provocatively, but they think that they're being very modest. And there are different cultures around this world. I would say that if you live in a very hot, humid culture, you probably would dress a little bit lighter than if you lived in Regina during uh, February. You would not be wearing anything very provocative. I, I'm not even sure how you could, uh, when it's 40 below wind chills. But, uh, even there in the warmer climates, not everybody dresses the same. If you live in Riyadh, or Doha, or in Qatar, or some other places, they have very different ideas of what modest is compared to, say, Jamaica. So these are not always easy, simple questions. Sometimes we in the ministry or our wives may talk to somebody because somebody has gone over the line. And, for example, of others, we might ask that they would help us in that way to set the example for others. Uh, Nevertheless, the principle is modest apparel. Now, If you want to have a list of do's and don'ts, where do you start and where do you stop when it comes to dress codes? I guess the simplest is fall in line with the burqa. That way, you have a pretty good eye. But even they don't agree because some of them, you can see, you know, they, they cover up from here, and others, all you see are the eyes. So depending on which branch of Islam, even they don't agree. Their do's and don'ts are slightly different than others. So the point is that we must learn as members of God's church to be able to make righteous judgments, make righteous decisions on these things without somebody telling us, yes, this is okay, that's not okay. That does not mean that as older women we shouldn't teach younger women uh, certain things of modesty. We had one of our older ladies that went to several of the dorms, and and talked to the girls because they were coming to services with what would amount to uh, evening wear as opposed to Sabbath wear. And some had very low-cut uh, dresses and so forth, and she explained how they could you know, take a scarf or a piece of cloth or whatever and they could fill that in a little bit, uh, teaching the girls how to be a little bit more modest, and I think we need to do that. That's a responsibility that our older women need to teach the young women. Otherwise, they they never learn anything. But at the same time, as styles change, where are we going to end if it's always is this okay? At some point, we must go beyond that. We must learn to make righteous judgments. In Romans the fourteenth chapter, Romans fourteen, and verse twenty one. Here's a principle that we ought to live by. It doesn't have to do with dress codes, but it does. Paul says, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, there are some things that cause people to stumble. There are some things that, I guess spaghetti straps are one. Again, I'm not sure I get it, but... There are a lot of people that do. It is offensive to a lot of people. So we have to ask the question, is this really what I should be should be wearing? Uh, and I think, again, it depends a lot on age and other circumstances. But the point is that Paul is saying, look, I need to think not just what I want to do, but I need to consider those around me. I'm a part of a, a culture here. And we are to be a, a holy culture. And we need to think about the well-being of the other person. There are several scriptures we could turn to on that very, uh, very subject. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. He says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense. So there is a principle of not causing offense in the church. And that's a a bigger question or bigger issue, you might say, an overriding principle that goes beyond, is it okay? This last week I had someone write to me about yoga. This person had come out of a Hindu background and is familiar with the origins of yoga. And so he sent me screenshots of the Smithsonian in, uh, Exhibition in Washington on yoga. And some of the pictures and also some of the writings, uh, paragraphs on the origins of yoga. And I looked at that and I thought, well, it just confirms what I personally know about the subject. Because I, because I had some uh, a little bit of arthritis at one time. Somewhat more severe, but, but which I don't have at the moment. By the way, thankfully I was anointed, and over a period of time it seemed to uh, well, not seemed to, but it went away, and I'm thankful to God because it was nothing I did. But somebody told me that taking class in yoga would be helpful because it was good for stretching. So I always had doubts about yoga, but. I decided, well I want to find out what it's about, so I went to this class, and I took this class, and I never went back. And the reason I never went back was because, toward the end of the class, they kind of turned the lights down a little bit, and I realized that every instructor is going to be different, but the class that I took, they turned the lights down and you were to lay down, you were to, 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 uh, you know, clear your mind of everything. And then there was another point there where I don't remember if we were sitting cross-legged, but you were supposed to have the palms up. You know, this stuff comes right out of Hinduism. I didn't do that part of the class. But I never went back because I did not like what I was seeing in that class. Now, you might be taking yoga classes, and where you're taking them, it might simply be stretching but even the kinds of exercises have a certain philosophy behind them. So am I saying that yoga is not okay? What I'm saying is do your homework. And look at what God says about bringing strange religions into, into your religion or into the way that we worship God. That's a decision that I don't think that we want to legislate on. I think if we have enough of God's Spirit and we know what our particular circumstance is there, again, there, there may be very different instructors. I don't know. I, all I know is I went to one, and it wasn't for me. We must come to the place where we savor the things of God. And there's an article that I wrote for the next Living Church News on that subject. I hope all of you will read it. But in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, Hebrews 5 and verse 12, this is something that we really need to take to heart. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, the solid food is not speculative prophecy. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Notice that that individual is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature, spiritually mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, I, I went to a particular class and... My senses were exercised to the point that I said, for me, this is not for me. It, it did not make sense. And again, I'm only, I only went to one class, and maybe somebody else's class is totally different. But when I looked at it from the principles of God and where this stuff was coming from that was being presented, you know, the palms up, that's, that's about where I really realized that this is, this is not... Um, what I want to be a part of. By reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And Sometimes we make decisions and it's only when we're there that we realize that this is not a good decision or we realize that it is a good decision. In First John 3, 1 John 3, and verse 22, the question is not is it okay? The question is, what pleases God? He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So as I said, is it okay, is the wrong question? Instead, we ought to ask, how can I please God? Asking the wrong question is easy because it puts the emphasis on the other person making the decision for you. But asking and answering the right question or right questions is sometimes a bit more difficult, because it may mean not doing something that you want to do, and because it sometimes is not so easy to know. We might have to do a little digging ourselves to figure it out. But asking the right question or questions leads to true righteousness.